Tonight, a special conversation with Premier Brian Peckford, the last surviving Premier who signed the Charter of Rights. We'll talk about his new lawsuit challenging the vaccine mandates for airplanes. It's February 3rd, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon yeah. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Well, you might recall that we had a fascinating conversation with Premier Brian Peckford, who is the last surviving Premier who signed the Charter of Rights and Freedoms a generation ago. He was the Premier of Newfoundland at the time, and now he is a freedom activist who is tackling lockdown extremism. He's based in Vancouver Island. What an enjoyable conversation we had with him. But now he's joining us not as a pundit, but as a plaintiff. He is one of a half dozen plaintiffs who are in a Justice Center for Constitu Constitutional Freedoms lawsuit challenging the flight ban against Canadians who are not vaccinated. I have read the lawsuit cover to cover, and I encourage you to do so. It's only 20 pages long, and although there is some legalese in it, it's pretty easy to understand. It's very clearly written, which is something to be admired in a legal document. We'll have a copy of it on the website below. But what a pleasure it is now to be joined via Skype with Premier Peckford. And I'm going to call him that just the same way you call a retired president president. We're joined now by Premier Peckford to walk through this lawsuit page by page. And if you're as interested in it as I am, I hope you'll stay with us for the whole conversation. Premier Peckford, what a pleasure to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. I think it's all very important. Uh, we're talking about the rights and freedoms of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Uh, there's nothing more important than this as far as I'm concerned, and I'm glad you see it the same way as I do. Well, I've seen a lot of lawsuits over the last <laughs> two years, and many of them were doomed, even some very well-crafted ones. This is very concise. There's not a wasted word, and I find it very compelling. Obviously, I'm sympathetic. Let's jump right into it. I have it in front okay. of me, and we're going to show sections of it on the screen as we go through it. Premier, I'm sure you know this practically by heart. The first thing to note is that this lawsuit is filed in the federal court. There's different court systems. The federal court, that's because that would be the court with jurisdiction over national projects like air regulations, right? Exactly. Exactly. And very important. And also, uh, we chose the uh, mobility uh, situation in the charter, mobility clause, where people are not allowed to travel. Also, because every Canadian is affected by it. A lot of the provincial uh, measures uh, are different. They all have measures, which we don't agree with, but they're different in different provinces. But this particular federal action does affect every single Canadian because we know, we all know, we have friends, family, and work. You should see the emails I've gotten so far from people who can't go from Vancouver to Toronto and they have an office in Vancouver, they have an office in Toronto. <clears throat> so this is uh, deliberate on the part of JCCF and myself and the others who are part of the, the litigation that this affects all Canadians and, like you said, goes straight to the federal court. Yeah. Well, I'm literally going to go line by line here because there's meaning in every line. The next <laughs> line is the list of plaintiffs, and you're the first one, the Honorable A. Brian Peckford, and then there's five other names. Leisha Nikonin, Ken Bajant, Drew Bellababa, Natalie Gritch, and Aid McDonald. Forgive me for not pronouncing the names right. Each one of these people is an is a Canadian citizen, and further down in the lawsuit, their own story is told. Why they need to fly, why they can't fly. So these are six severely normal Canadians, other than the fact that you just happen to be a former premier. Exactly, and I, I think I think uh, JCCF and their lawyers were, were very smart, uh, as as you, you seem to indicate as well, in doing this because now you have a kaleidoscope, uh, you know, view of different Canadians, all Canadian citizens, all with that particular story of how they're affected yeah. by this travel ban. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. And in my own case, yeah. forget that I'm a former premier and a crafter of the Constitution 
and one of the first ministers who helped craft it. But here I am in Vancouver Island, and I yeah. got family in Nova Scotia, I got family in Ontario, and I got family back in Newfoundland. Well, yeah. you know, <laughs> give me a break. And the other thing is, of course, I'm restricted now from speaking because of the, the distance so, right. so far. So right. most, most of the speaking I've been doing on the Constitution has been here in, on Vancouver Island because yeah. I'm prevented from moving quickly to another part of Canada and therefore I'm unable to get my message out like I should be legitimately able to do like other Canadians. Yeah, and of course these same uh, regulations apply to rail and I understand they apply to ferries as well. You know, we are the second largest country in the world and to uh, ban, and you're on an island no less, and to ban people from air travel is, you know, this is not like Vatican City where you can walk across. It's not Monaco. It's the second largest. And and very interesting to me, one of the plaintiffs is in the far north. So, I mean, imagine yes. how critical that is. All right, let's keep moving. I mean, we're, we're only at the first two lines of the lawsuit, and I, wanted, I do want to get through it. Uh, again, one thing I want to salute the JCCF, and we're big fans, have been for a long time, is how lean this lawsuit is. It doesn't go running off in all directions. It just sues the Minister of Transport, and it names the Attorney General, which is appropriate whenever you're suing the government. So this isn't going after every single possible person. I've seen some lawsuits out there, 400 pages, that get sloppy and that are—this is focused like a laser. I think that's important, isn't it? Absolutely important, and I'm glad you highlighted it. A lot of other people haven't highlighted it yet, because many of them haven't read it. They've just read a press report, yeah. which does nothing to the lawsuit at all. And uh, kudos to you for actually having the lawsuit in front of you <coughs> and reading it, because now you can factually uh, indicate what it's all about. And yeah, it is laser-focused upon the Ministry of Transport, who issued those uh, uh, travel bans under the air not exact which we, uh, through the um, the lawyers, indicate is, is completely wrong, too. It doesn't apply there. But but in any case, yeah, we're, we're zeroing right in on this uh, travel ban and how it violates the provisions of the uh, Charter as well as the Aeronautics Act itself. So, yeah, no, no question. Um, there's no question that a lot of people have not learned that when you go to court, you have to be very specific. Yeah. And this lawsuit does that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And it and it, by the way, it, it also means that the government can't get an escape hatch through through your, like if you don't have five arguments, they choose the weakest one as maybe a way out. This is lean and focused. Now, this the name of this kind of lawsuit is a judicial review because technically, it's uh, you're not suing uh, something has been done an, an administrative regulatory act has been done and you're seeking for that to be reviewed so it's just called a judicial review it's just the name of the kind of lawsuit and you're not seeking any money if i'm not mistaken correct me if i'm wrong you're seeking no, you're seeking a, a rescission of these rules and a declaration you this is really you're you're looking for a moral legal and constitutional statement from the court that what is being done is wrong. Am I right? You're dead on. And that is, I think, so, so important. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're just seeking for redress mm -hmm. where we, what we've looked at through, through the Ministry of Transport and the Aeronautics Act and, and the repercussions of the, of the action and how it uh, violates the various provisions of the Charter. And what we're asking for is a judicial review and that that review be able to, based upon the evidence and the legal arguments presented, mm -hmm. declare that these measures are not consistent with the Constitution nor with the law. Yeah. I'm on page two now, uh, and we're going through because there's something interesting on every page. It's only 20 pages long. I truly do uh, invite our viewers just to click the link underneath this video. It's only 20 pages, and it's pretty plain language. I think I think it's worth a read. Now, I see that you filed this on January 27th, not even a week ago, or perhaps exactly a week ago. Um, I have a question for you. I think this is news. It's news because this uh, airplane lockdown is abusive. It, as you say, it affects all 38 million of us. It's news because you are who you are. You're the former premier, and, and you know a little bit about the charter. It's news because the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms is a credible public interest law firm. This isn't some long-shot, vexatious—this uh, is a real deal. I got a question for you, pretty blunt. 
Have you been interviewed, and I hope the answer is yes, by any mainstream media? Have you appeared on the CBC? Have you appeared on CTV or Global News? I hope the answer is yes. In all cases, no. What? You are a former premier. I mean, you're part of Canadian constitutional history. You weren't just a footnote premier. You were one of the men around the table when the Charter of Rights, when the Constitution was repatriated. Even if they disagree with your point of view, you you were a walking repository of Canadian legal history. Are you telling me that you have not appeared on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, whose mandate it is to talk about Canadian issues? Absolutely. Not one call. Not one call. From CBC, not one call. Not even just to, not even a hostile call. You're saying they didn't even call. Exactly, exactly. The the, the line has been silent. There's been other, uh, you know, smaller publications or or podcasts and stuff like that that have called me and, and of course yourself. But no, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which gets over a billion dollars a year from the taxpayers of this country, have not seen fit to contact the former premier of Newfoundland, who not only helped craft the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but whose proposal the night of November the 4th, 1981, was the basis for the Constitution and Act, which included the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, that's just where it is. Well, Premier, I got to tell you, I would bet my life savings that if you had come out in favor of the lockdown, you would be the toast of the town of the CBC. They would be battling over who gets to interview you over there. That's my prediction. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. They're, they've been extremely uh, uh, hostile towards me. And, of course, I've actually written the National Post on several occasions, and they won't even carry my, my, my letters anymore. So The National you know, Post I, and the No. And, and the Global Mail hasn't even contacted me. So if these people keep declaring that they're national newspapers and yet they won't interview me on something as crucial to the history and to the democracy of our nation, one has got to ask some pretty serious questions. You know, even if they don't support you, it's news. It just is objectively news that a serious, credible lawsuit has been filed in the federal court by six plaintiffs, one of whom is the former premier, who is actually there, the drafting the charter, making charter arguments. I don't care if you like it, hate it, or are neutral. That is objectively, factually news. And all these newspapers of record that you've just listed, I, I'm truly shocked that the National Post uh, is on your list there because I would have thought that there's a vestige of their old uh, soul still within them. But it sounds like I'm very surprised by that. I, let's let's yeah, keep no. going. I want to, I, we're, get, we're, you know, I, that was an important point, but let's get back to the document. Last thing on page two. I see that this was issued by the registry officer of the court in Calgary. Now, is it a fact that the federal court has one big national jurisdiction? So we don't know where the judge may come from. You might get a judge uh, from anywhere in the country. Is that correct? It's, it's because it's a federal court? Yes, but we've asked for it to be held in Ontario, in Ottawa. In Ottawa. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's yeah. dig in. We're on page three now, so we're making good progress. And... And I see here you're listing the various acts, the various laws that you're yes. discussing, the Aeronautics Act, um, and, and you're referring in particular to an a interim order respecting right. civil avi aviation. Let's stop there for a minute because, you know, if you were to ask a Canadian, how are laws made? How are we governed? They would say, okay, there's a parliament or a legislature, and someone introduces a bill, which is like a, a baby law, and then it's debated, and maybe there's some hearings and committee meetings, and people get to come and say, well, there's a problem here, or what about that? And then the law, maybe people who are a little savvy would say, okay, the, the bill is read once, and then there's a second reading and a third reading. That That's a fancy way of saying it. It's amended and then voted, and there's it's voted in different stages, and there's this whole process. There's this whole process. There's a record of it all. The, uh, there's official transcript called the Hansard. Like, I'm using technical jargon, but I think everyone could say, okay, yeah, I know what you mean. Like, we've all watched that kid's show, How Does a Bill Become a Law? The American version, at least. We have a similar version here. Is it a fact, and I believe it is, that this ban on travel was actually not passed 
in a law in Parliament. It was not a bill that was debated. It didn't go to committee. It was not subject to debate in Parliament. It was simply issued like a like someone high on Mount Olympus issuing an order. Is that correct, Premier? Exactly. There was no. This is one of the arguments I've had all along with all of the measures is that they've used existing legislation and under existing legislation issued interim orders rather than do what in this kind of circumstance you would have thought they would have done is to go to their parliaments and introduce a new bill to cover this particular unique circumstance. Yeah. I'm going to read paragraph two of the lawsuit verbatim because I think it's very clear language. The decision, so we're talking about the decision that was made by some bureaucrat somewhere and just spoken into effect like, like it was some king. The decision implements restrictions on Canadians that are not related to a, quote, significant risk, direct or indirect, to aviation safety or the safety of the public, and are ultra virus, which is outside the power, um, uh, the authority of the Aeronautics Act. The decision with limited exceptions, effectively bans Canadians who have chosen not to receive an experimental medical treatment from domestic and international travel by airplane. The result is discrimination and a gross violation of the constitutionally protected rights of Canadians as guaranteed by the Charter of Rights. I think that sums it all up in that one paragraph, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it, it really does, and I was really happy when I first read it, when they said it to me, as you know, asking me my opinion on it. Uh, yeah, it's extremely succinct and to the point. And, and uh, look, that part about the, the, the Aeronautics Act being uh, ultra-virus, I mean, that's very important. We're, we're, we're alleging that the, the Aeronautics Act doesn't apply here, and, and they're using something uh, that doesn't apply. So uh, even from square one, right, the Aeronautics Act that they use, and then using it, um, and the way the travel ban is being implemented, it violates all of these um, provisions of the Charter. So, um, yeah, I think uh, we've uh, successfully put together a, a succinct way uh, to Canadians. Like I said, every, anybody could read this. Anybody could read this. And so it, it's very simple, but it's very poignant and to the point. Yeah. I'm going to skip ahead to page four. And this is a section called Relief Sought. That's a legal way of saying, what do you want? What do you want the court to do? So you've got a few things here. I'm not going to read them all. You want a declaration that this order is of no force and effect. That's sort of obvious. A declaration that it's got errors in it. I'm going to skip on down here. This is one of the most interesting things. I like this. Disclosure from the governor and council, that means from the cabinet, of all information relied upon by the Minister of Transport informing the decision that the freedom of mobility of Canadians should be restricted based on vaccination status. So you're not just asking for the law to be struck down. You want to put eyes on what was what they were looking at. Who said what? What facts? Were there even any facts? Or was it, as I suspect, not based on health, but based on political compliance and punish people? So I love uh, Section 5D, which is you want to see what they're hiding. Do you know something is really important? Since we signed off on that, and that's in there, uh, yesterday I found out that uh, the uh, Constitutional Court in Austria is asking for the same thing that we are asking for in our uh, litigation and in our lawsuit. And I think this is extremely important because I suspect you may be right that this was just a recommendation from a number of departments without the data and the evidence to demonstrate that what they were doing had legitimacy. Yeah, I and and we'll get to it later. But we talked about this in our last discussion. Section one of the Constitution, uh, which you helped draft says you can yes. violate someone's rights, but only on strict conditions. It has to be rationally connected to your public policy objective. It has to be, uh, you know, the, the, the least infringement possible. Um, it, it has to, you know, be a pressing and substantial problem you're solving. Right. It has to be bona fide. It can't be some trick or some political move. It has to have a real reason. Exactly, and that's why the Oaks test in a, in a court decision back in 1986, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada itself was very 
careful in talking about Section 1. Of course, my argument is Section 1 doesn't even apply because I remember clearly that by putting it in the Constitution where we're talking about permanent values and only if the state was in deep peril could you use it and the state is not in deep peril. But even for argument's sake, if you say it does apply, those four tests... You have to demonstrably justify. You have to do it by law. It has to be with reasonable limits. And we all know these limits have changed with each new eating. And it has to be done in consistent with a free and democratic society. All of these tests have not been met by what the government has done, both in this particular lawsuit and in the larger measures that other governments have taken. Yeah. You know what? I, I'm too excited about this lawsuit. I'm talking too much. Let me get back to the document. Um, I just mentioned D, so you're looking on the information that the minister relied on. But E, I think, could be even more interesting because you're asking for all relevant materials relied on forming, uh, informing the decision and obtained during the course of consultations with any person or organization. So, So the government itself had its documents. But who did they consult with? Who did they talk to? Did they talk to Pfizer? Just picking a name out of the hat. Who did they talk to? And what did what did those other did they meet with any lobbyists? What did they show? And yes. normally in a normal healthy legislative process, this is all transparent. You see, you know, this is exactly. all chewed over in the in the light of day. This was done in a dark room. Absolutely no question, and that's why that, that uh, demand or that request is so, so important. Where did they get them information? Who did they talk to? Did they talk to? Uh, did they talk to Dr. Brian Bridal? Did they talk to Dr. Eric Payne, two Canadians who've done a lot of research on this? Did they talk to Dr. Jessica Rose? Did they talk to Ju Dr. Julie Panessi? Did they talk to any of these people? Did they talk to Dr. Roger Hodginson? Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, did they go outside their circle? Or was this just a one-trick pony yeah. that whatever their own internal department gave them, they relied on, which would, would show that they were completely uninformed about the totality of the science, if they did it that way, and would there, and therefore would bring complete disrepute mm. on their decision to the courts. Right. Now, your next section, you talk about the different sections of the charter that are violated. I'm going to skip over that because we come back to it later. I want to, I want to get to point uh, I, five I, I believe it is, because this is a, this is such a huge point that suddenly, like, I mean. If you've taken high school biology, you don't have to be a professor to know about immunity. You, I mean, you just have to be a kid who gets chicken pox or whatever, and you know what it means. It, you know, you, you get a disease, you get it better. I mean, I, I'm old enough that, there, that when kids had chicken pox, the other moms would bring their kids over. So you'd get it early instead of later in life when it could actually be a serious uh, health problem. And that's natural immune. Everyone knows what that your immune system, strengthen your immune system. Everyone knows that that's a thing. You don't have to be a scholar to know that. And yet, let me quote your lawsuit. You were seeking a declaration that natural immunity to COVID-19, as evidenced by a serology test, be recognized as equivalent to being fully vaccinated as defined in the decision. So I... You know, many countries around the world, from Israel to the United Kingdom, have acknowledged natural immunity as a thing. Canada, bizarrely, just doesn't. That I mean, that is kooky, unscientific misinformation to pretend it doesn't exist. It does exist, and you're asking a court to acknowledge that, aren't you? Absolutely, and it's medically and scientifically without question that natural immunity is... A thing is real and does do the same protection uh, as do as does or more so than the vaccinated. So this is an extremely important point, and, uh, and you know why why the governments haven't already acknowledged that this is exactly like you said. We know from our own history. You know, I had the measles, I had the mumps, I had the chicken pox. We stayed home, right? There, are, our mothers and fathers looked after us and. They, they kept telling us that after five or six days, this will, you know, gradually go away. And we were crying and we weren't, right? But it did. And then we were immune and we had a, a immunity. Yeah. And so, and we've had, everybody's had a cold or the flu and so on. So yeah, I think this is extremely important. And uh, of course, there's a real weakness that the federal government mm -hmm. and the governments of the provinces 
have now, and we're zeroing in on that weakness because this is a medical fact that they have not acknowledged, yeah. and we must get the court to acknowledge it on their behalf now. Yeah. I like Section J, that you're seeking a declaration prohibiting the government from issuing subsequent orders of a substantially similar nature. So basically, if this gets struck down, you don't want them to immediately put in something very similar. Exactly. Now, I'm going to exactly. skip ahead a little bit. I'm on page six, but I'm, I'm not going to go through every page. Here, this is, this, you know what? Some of the finest lawyers in America, they, the American lawyers do this a lot more than Canadian lawyers, I think. They, they make their lawsuit tell a story uh, in plain, accessible language. It's almost literature. It's not just legalistic. Yes. Yes. And here... Each of the plaintiffs is described um, a little bit about their life, a little bit about who they are. And, you know, we, we know you. We had a good conversation last time. I won't go through all the names. But, what you know, people are in different geographies. Someone's in the U.K. and has to come back. They're allowed to get on the plane in the U.K. to Canada, but they can't go from Canada to the U.K. Apparently, the science makes sense. Um or, or, or come come to Canada and land in Toronto, and they and they live in St. John's, or they live in Calgary, and then they can't get about another plane to go to inside Canada, but they can come in to Canada, so they're now stranded in Toronto in their own country from getting home. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, is that ridiculous or what? That makes no sense. On page eight of your lawsuit. Um, section 16, I think this is a good point. It shows, I mean, there's a phrase, what are, the, what are the framers' intent or what are the legislators' intention? Because sometimes courts say, okay, we're arguing over the law, but what did the people who wrote the law in, in the legislature actually mean? And let me read section 16 of your lawsuit. In the months leading up to the issuance of the decision, the Prime Minister of Canada made pejorative and discriminatory statements towards Canadians who have made the decision not to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, including by calling them racists, misogynists, and asking, do we tolerate these people? That is, I've, I mean, could you possibly have starker evidence of bad faith and malice? Absolutely, and it colors completely all of what the government has done, because if the leader of the government is acting in this manner and has this kind of view and attitude towards one group of Canadians, then this must color all of the decisions that come down, which therefore were prejudicial right from the start. Yeah. Section 19, you refer to the four different vaccines in Canada, and you say all COVID-19 vaccines are still undergoing clinical trials which are scheduled for completion in 2023 or later, none of these vaccines prevent the infection or transmission of COVID-19, including the Omicron variant. Yeah, I mean, we've learned a lot since the advent of these vaccines about a year ago when we were told by everyone uh, in authority that they are a real vaccine. I don't even know if if they were introduced with what we know now, if, if they, we would even be calling them vaccines. And I don't say this as a conspiracy theorist. It's just a vaccine in plain English, is something you take that you will not get sick from. Justin Trudeau himself has had three shots, allegedly, and he claims to have COVID. So it's not much of a vaccine. Exactly. And what everybody has ignored, and I, I don't understand why, and even some of the great scientists who are, um, who are you know, have questions about the vaccine and even calling it that, have not highlighted the fact that, I mean, through the VAERS system in the United States, to the new division in, in, in Europe, we do know that, you know, upwards to 50,000 people have died after taking the vaccine and over, you know, over 1 million have been injured. As a matter of fact, there's over 2 million now have been injured. And these are actual reports that have been submitted voluntarily by people in, in these jurisdictions. And so, and they also admit that that number is only 1% to 10% of the total. So it's highly likely that there's over 150,000 to 200,000 people in the United States and Europe that have actually died from these vaccines and three to four million that have been some seriously injured mm -hmm. or injured generally yeah. uh, by taking these vaccines. That part of the equation has been ignored. And I don't know, I don't understand why, because the data is out there and I have it here on my computer. I can go in and check theirs every day of the week and I can do the same thing for your religion. And here come up, up the numbers, which nobody has really disputed. Yeah. 
in section 20 of your lawsuit, you list some of these side effects, Bell's palsy, thrombosis. Um, I, I don't even know some of these words. I know myocarditis and pericarditis. It's a fact. And again, these things are published, but they're certainly they're published by the government, but they're underreported by the media. Section 21 Absolutely. of your lawsuit, vaccinated and unvaccinated Canadians can be infected with and transmit COVID-19. However, individuals under 60 years old without comorbidities, have an approximately 99.997% chance of recovery from COVID-19. And the thing is, I mean, I don't want anyone to die from the disease, but if you know, if you know, if you're 80 years old plus, if you're very fat, if you've got heart disease and liver disease and kidney disease, okay, that you're at high risk. You're at high risk. Yep. But you're a 20-year-old young man, fit, healthy, athletic, active. The idea of having a one-size-fits-all rule is absurd. And again, I, I don't think anyone would dispute that had we had those facts more clearly a year ago. But we're so locked into this, we're in a rut and, and they can't lose face. They're so obsessed with the vaccines, they don't dare acknowledge these obvious facts now. And Lieutenant Colonel David Redmond, you know, a year and a half ago, uh, described all of this and showed just what you're saying now. And because what he showed was, because he was involved with Emergency Measures Alberta years ago after he got out of the armed forces, is that all of the provinces have an emergency measures organization, which is set up just to handle this, uh, these kinds of circumstances so that it wouldn't be just a one-size-fits-all, a single unidimensional approach. It had to be a multi-dimensional approach, bringing in all the departments, the private sector, and then developing a mitigation plan, which a lot of these emergency measures already have on their desks that the governments have never used. Yeah. I want to read uh, this. Uh, then this is one of my favorite parts of the lawsuit. It's a subsection called the impact of the decision on the applicants. And this is what I mean about literature. It, it humanizes the lawsuit. It tells the personal story of everyone. I'll just read a little bit from yours. I thought this was interesting. So this is referring to you. When I say he, it's referring to you, uh, Premier Preckford. He believes that there is too much uncertainty and risk with this medical intervention for him to give informed consent to receiving it. Mr. Peckford did not apply for a medical or religious exemption as he objects to the use of such products in exercise of his conscience, bodily autonomy, life, liberty, and security of the person, and believes that having to disclose his vaccination status to the respondents as a condition of boarding an airplane is a violation of his privacy. Mr. Peckford also has been segregated from other vaccinated Canadian air travelers, which renders him a second-class citizen. So... You haven't even tried to say, well, it's against my religion or I have a medical reason. You're just saying my deep beliefs, my personal beliefs, my brain, my own assessment of my own life and the fact that it's none of your bloody business. Those are your reasons. I, I think that's a very principled line to take as opposed to, you know, participating in the rules. You're saying I don't even want to participate in this system. I don't want an exemption in this system. This whole system's rotten. I was pointedly asked by the lawyers about that. I'm glad you raised that particular point, because I was pointedly asked by the lawyers when they were developing the case, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you get a medical exemption? And my answer was, as you just detailed there in the suit, I didn't want to participate in something which violated my rights as an individual over bodily autonomy, security of the person, as in the the, the, the charter itself, and so that therefore I wasn't willing to engage in something where my privacy was being infringed and my right to my own body was being infringed. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to read through all the stories of the individual plaintiffs. They're very interesting. I say again, you can read the 20-page the, the lawsuit on our website. But Mr. Bajant, if I'm saying that right, forgive me if I'm not saying his name, I, uh, this caught my eye. He lives in, uh, or he, he goes back and forth between Ontario and Yellowknife. I've been yeah. to Yellowknife. It is a very far away place. Let me read from the lawsuit. Mr. Bajan had to drive 5,000 kilometers of dangerous highways in extreme winter weather conditions to reunite with his family in Ontario. He will have to make the return trip in February under the same extreme 
winter weather conditions, he will have to complete this journey four more times in 2022. Mr. Bayshin does not have the financial means to travel to and from work in a private chartered aircraft. And by the way, private chartered aircrafts are not exempt from the vaccine rules if you're taking off from a certain airport. That's an incredible story of someone who's basically being told, you can't live, you can't work, you can't travel unless you get this jab, no matter what your conscience says, no matter if you're natural. Like, that's an incredible story. I think that is a really compelling story. Absolutely no question about it. And I've had, like I say, since this uh, lawsuit has been filed, <clears throat> uh, uh, it's unbelievable number of emails I've had and phone calls I've had from people to say, if your lawyers want to add another story, here's my story, which is like, Absolutely. Some of these stories are so touching. I have one from a from a lady, uh, an unmarried mother with a couple of children, and she's a professional and how it's affected her life. It's just unbelievable. And so there's stories out there all over the place, including this man. And I've been to Yellowknife as well. And to go from Yellowknife to Ontario, this is unbelievable. Yeah. What they're putting this man through in a democracy called Canada is just not right. Yeah undemocratic, and has to be struck down. Yeah. Now, I'm going to skip over the other plaintiffs. They're all interesting stories, and they each have a slightly different uh, argument. They're, they're makes for compelling reading. But what's, what's notable to me over the last two years is the legal trickery by which things have been done. Um, so much power invested in health officers who none of us ever heard of before, none of us voted for, none of us can vote out, who in many cases, seem to have power trumping those of elected officials. Um, sometimes elected officials hide behind the skirts of these public health officers uh, when it suits them. But this is not any democracy we've ever been taught about. And if this is the new permanent emergency, I don't think you can call it an emergency anymore. I think, I think you start to use other words like an undemocratic system. Let me read section 37 of your lawsuit on page 13. So it talks about how this was done. This was not a health order. This was not done in a parliamentary debate. Here's how it was done. The decision for the vaccines is outside the power ultravirus, the authority delegated to the Minister of Transport under the section of the Aeronautics Act, which restricts the minister's order-making power to matters related to aviation safety consistent with the scope and objects of the Act, the Aeronautics Act. The decision is ultra-virus outside of his power, as it was made for an improper purpose and in bad faith in further furtherance of an ulterior motive, and here's the key part, to pressure Canadians into taking the COVID-19 vaccines. So pretending to be about aeronautic safety, pretending to be about, like this is where you go to about engine failure or maybe the Boeing 737 MAX or, you know, maintenance of an aircraft. This is where you're supposed to take care of airplanes and you're using the Airplanes Act. Literally, it's called the Aeronautics Act as a ulterior way to force people to get jabbed because, you know, people like to fly and they have to fly. But so what? Sneak it in the Aeronautics Act for that purpose, to force them to. And I don't think anyone pr would pretend it's anything else other than pressuring, forcing. I mean, leaders around the world have said as much. The, the president of France has said he wants to like, make life very difficult for the unvaxxed. We've heard half a dozen Canadian politicians say the same thing. I think that that is a microcosm of everything that's happened over the last two years. People doing things improperly, improperly with laws that weren't meant to do so, and so far no judge has stood up to it. No, I couldn't agree more, and I think that's in a very important section uh, of the lawsuit. There's no question that the, the Aeronautics Act was for safety, was for the safety of the airplane, that people getting aboard could be ensured, assured that this was a safe plane, had the proper maintenance, there was everything that was working, that kind of thing, and then to trans to try to get that to fit into a, a situation as relates to a medical experiment, uh, you know, completely. I think myself that the federal government today, after seeing this lawsuit, uh, understand and are scared that what they did in this particular case, uh, because I think they would have thought they had better legs to stand on if they stayed within the public health services legislation, 
to move it into aeronautics in this way to uh, to inhibit travel ban really stretched and exposed the federal government for what they were doing even in the public health act but what they were doing now they were just trying to get people to get the jab yeah and they were using illegal matters means to do it yeah I'm hoping that the combination of a very well-crafted lawsuit and your personal moral authority as one of the signers, authors of the charter will perhaps give the federal court cause to carefully consider because there have been no meaningful court victories to, to put the brakes on this, this lockdown extremism we've seen. Now, the most important part of the lawsuit is now. Section 39 onwards, the charter violations. This is the base. This is your home turf. You were there. You were. You know, we say the legislator's intent. Well, you're the guy. You were there. You know. You were in the room. You know what the debates were. Now, I'm not going to read all of this, but I'm going to list the charter rights that you say were violated. I'm just going to list them, and then I'd like you to speak to them. So the numbers I'm going to give are the sections of the charter, which you know by heart. Section 2A, freedom of religions and conscience. Section 6, right to leave the country and travel within the country. Section 7, life, liberty, and security of the person, that by your own body. Section 8, right to privacy. Section 15, equality rights. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot here, but instead of reading the lawsuit, well, why don't we just hear about the guy who wrote the charter with the other premiers? So that's, those are, any one of those should be fatal to this. But you've got, what, five different sections of the charter there? Yeah, absolutely, no question. And in my public meetings, I go through those five. <clears throat> and, and uh, yeah, I, I, to me, you know, this is, this is so over the top what's happening. To what, and remember, uh, uh, as we put this in the Constitution, if we wanted this to be easy for change and to use in all kinds of weird circumstances that the governments, in their wisdom or lack thereof, and in this case, lack thereof, want to declare an emergency, uh, then they could uh, easily use uh, the Section 1 and override and do whatever they want. But by putting all of this in the Constitution, which everybody knows is supposed to be away from the everyday political machinations that go on. It's for permanent values that only could be uh, overridden in the most extreme circumstances like war or insurrection. That's why it was put in the, in, <clears throat> in the Constitution in the beginning. In Section 2, I mean, you know, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, right? freedom of expression, even freedom of, of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, right? And then you go to six, mobility itself, the right to move or to travel anywhere in Canada or leave Canada. And in that section too, of course, is the right to pursue a living. And here's this man in the Yukon having to travel back and forth to Ontario, right? The right to pursue a living anywhere in Canada. Well, this poor man, citizen, has been denied his freedom to pursue his job in, a, in the normal sense of the word. This is unbelievable. And then, of course, I love Section 7. I just love Section 7, right? Every Canadian has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. These things can't be taken away with a declared emergency with a 99% recovery rate and less than a 1% fatality rate. You can't, you can't bargain rights and freedoms using that kind of a circumstance. You, can, you just can't do it. And then, of course, as you say, your privacy in Section 8 of the individual, the right to privacy, and Section 15, I love that one too, the right of equality before the law, right? Everybody's equal before the law. And here I am. In Parksville, B.C. today, I don't have the same rights as people across the street. I don't have the same rights. I can't go to the same places that they can go. These are powerful concepts. Look, it took 114 years to get a written Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And you're telling me 40 years later they were suddenly going to eviscerate this in a bargain between a 99% recovery rate and a less than 1% fatality rate and bargain my rights and freedoms away? Oh, no, that ain't a valid equation. Mm -hmm. hmm. 
Wow. Well, we're almost at the end of the lawsuit. Um, I'm on page 16 now. We're talking about how this infringement was done. Again, it wasn't in a parliament. It wasn't in a vote. It wasn't in a debate. It wasn't fully aired. There was no right. transparency. There was no transcript. There was no public consultation. There was no chance for people to, to weigh in on this. It was done rashly and quickly and haphazardly. And here's how you put that, section 41, section 45. The decision was not made by due process of law. Among other things, the decision was not subject to legislative controls, customarily applied to the introduction of a new law. As a result, Canadians did not receive the benefit of multiple readings or parliamentary debate and scrutiny. The Minister of Transport has made the decision in an overly broad manner. There was no or insufficient stakeholder engagement or consultation. So this just so it would be bad enough if Parliament met and deliberated and everyone said, we agree. But there wasn't even a vote. There wasn't even a debate. There was no bill. Right. Exactly. And this is this, I think this is the most egregious part of it all, and goes right to the core of. Uh, section one again, which says all of the tests that you need to do, even an award insurrection, and even if, if it applied in this circumstance, must be done within the context of a free and democratic society. Well, what does a free and democratic society mean? That means parliamentary democracy. Whatever happened to the parliamentary committee to yeah. take a look at these actions and, and, and seek out right? Uh, alternate points of view, to seek out the view of stakeholders. None of this was done, and therefore it is basically and inherently undemocratic in the Canadian sense of parliamentary democracy. Yeah. All right, well, we're done the part of the lawsuit where you make the arguments. Now we're where you list the laws and the regulations that you will cite and use as an authority. Obviously, the Charter of Rights is the first one. You mentioned... Sections 1, 2, 6, 7, 8, 15, and 24 of the Constitution. We talked about most of those. You mentioned the Constitution Act. You mentioned Diefenbaker's Bill of Rights, which, which has similar language. You mentioned the Nuremberg Code of 1947, and I think some people don't know what that is. That was part of the judgment in the Nazi doctor's trial, wasn't it? That was these doctors, Joseph Mengele-type doctors, who did horrific experiments on people without their permission or consent. They were put on trial, very famous trial, and part of that was, here's how we do medicine going forward. We had no idea doctors could do such horrific things. Here are the rules. In and every doctor, yeah, and every doctor in Canada and in the Western world and, and beyond have used this code ever since. It's an ethical code for the world to delineate the rights of individuals and how they must, it must be informed consent, right? And this business of experimental stuff, you know, this is, doesn't work. And, and that's what they were doing in Nazi Germany at the time. And that's why the Nuremberg Code was written. How soon we forget yeah. that there's some basic human rights that are at issue here. And so therefore, I think we were very appropriate to use this Nuremberg Code as being uh, an applicable ethics code that all medical practitioners are familiar with when they go to law, when they go to medical school yeah. and, go, and go to their various professional schools. So I think it's very important for us to give a historical backdrop to this. Yeah. You know, whenever people mention Germany or not Nuremberg Code, some people say, oh, you're equating with this the Holocaust. No, no. This, it, this, these are the lessons of the Holocaust. If these rules were in place in advance, the Holocaust could never have happened because it would have been stopped dead in its tracks. It's many of the lessons we learned about conformity and fascism and abuse and shutting down dissidents and segregating people and, and treating people as unclean and demonizing them. There are many lessons from the 30s and 40s in Germany that can apply. And thank God we're not as far down the road as they went. But we are definitely out of the start. On the road. The demonization. We are further Go ahead. Absolutely. We're along that road. There is absolutely no question. And I am still amazed today, even this morning, in calls that I got and talks that I had with people who still don't recognize 
the sacredness of a, an individual freedom and right and how it supersedes all others. I mean, in the Constitution Act, 1982, it says, the supreme law of Canada is the constitution of the land. That stands over and above all else because it protects the individual rights and freedoms. <clears throat> Everybody's still looking at, or a lot of people, still don't get it, that this is not a federal law. This is not a provincial law or municipal law. This is the constitution of our country, which is a national law and is there to protect us and to guarantee us certain rights and freedoms. It is, it is in a league all of its own. If, if there's a national, if there's an American Hockey League and a Junior Hockey League and then a National Hockey League, this constitution goes even above the National Hockey League. Yeah. So that's why uh, you know, I, I'm out there just preaching every day, both on my blog and in interviews like this, and publicly, I got a public meeting coming up this weekend in the Comox Valley area and Campbell River area of Vancouver Island. And this is what I'll be saying. This is so important that it stands alone. And we've got to understand that this is sacred and can only be violated in the most extreme circumstances. Yeah. Well, we're almost on the lawsuit. On page 18, you list uh, a request for documents from the government. And I'm just going to read this paragraph that describes what you want because you don't have these. I don't have these. The public doesn't have these because, like I say, this was not done in a transparent way. So here's what you ask for that only the government has and you do not. All records, including but in no way limited to research, analysis, policy papers, briefing reports, studies, proposals, presentations, reports, memos, opinions, advice, letters, emails, and any other communications that were prepared commissioned, considered, or received by the government in Canada in relation to these matters. And that's the thing. We don't know. We didn't see it. And then you list the different government agencies, the Prime Minister's Office, the Justice Department, Global Affairs, all the different, you know, all the different arms of the government that might have them. And then I'm just going to skip to the very last page which is the names of the lawyers. Keith Wilson of Wilson Law Office, I, I know him from my Alberta days, very principled man, great lawyer, very freedom-oriented, and a couple of lawyers for the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, Allison Kindle Payevich, I don't know her, but I know Eva Chipiak uh, a little bit, I've spoken with her, very bright lawyers. This is a tightly written, easy to understand, clear, focused presentation of the case against airline vaccine mandates could obviously be applied to railways and f and ferry boats as well. It's well-drafted. It's clean. It's done by very legitimate, reputable folks, our friends at the JCCF. This is the most hopeful legal document in Canada today. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think we've, we've, we've managed to really uh, clean this up and, and, and provide something which, like I say, is easily understandable. Uh, Mr. Wilson, uh, the JCCF were, I think, smart to also go outside their own um, um, auspices and look for lawyers who are very um, well-versed in, uh, in taking um, issues like this to the federal court. Of the federal court. And uh, they, they even sought consultation beyond those ones that you named. So this is a highly well-crafted document that went through many, many eyes before it was submitted to the court. By the way, it got registered on January 31st. Okay. It was submitted on the 27th, and it got registered on January 31st. So it is a, a legal document now accepted, or legal lawsuit now accepted by the court. Got it. Well, you know, we took a lot of time, but we literally went through every single page. I enjoyed the conversation. I'm, uh, I found every page to be informative. Uh, I would encourage our readers, our viewers who are not lawyers to read it anyways. I don't think there's anything in there that will be baffling. There's not a lot of legal gobbledygook in there. Um, we'll, we'll post a copy on the website. We'll obviously keep our eyes peeled for the government's response. Obviously, time is of the essence, and I see in there, I skipped over the part where they're asking the court to sort of move along quickly. Exactly. Exactly. Um, We're asking for the decision. Yeah. 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 Well, this is very hopeful. I, 
I enjoyed going through this, and of course, it's a pleasure to talk with you because you're the actual one of the framers of the charter. But the, actually, in the in the past hour, the most dramatic thing that was said was you telling me, and I'm just turning this over in my head again, that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation has not asked you, or and, and you mentioned the Globe and Mail and you mentioned the National Post, that the, the what I call the media party, the legacy media, the corporate media, the established media, they simply have ignored this. There is no journalistic excuse for that. There's no editorial excuse for that. There's no political excuse for that. I find that deeply depressing, but I'm glad this is going in a court where the judges will look at it, and hopefully they'll be moved by it, because God knows we need some check and balance. If it won't be the media, maybe it'll be the courts. I wish you so much luck, Premier Brian well, Peckman. Go ahead. Thank you. No, I've always said that you know, we're in the second period. It might be getting near the end of the second period. We have to exhaust all of our means that are available to us on our existing system before we throw it all out. Yeah. Uh, and so this is very important. And so I thought it was important for me to come forward. I've talked a lot about it for a year and a half. Now, I think I'm going to not only talk to talk, I want to walk to walk. Well, you certainly are. You always have. It's a pleasure talking with you. I hope we'll keep in touch. If there's movement on this lawsuit, I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. And even though Thank it's you against, very much. Well, you're welcome. And even though it's against my interests as a competitor... Uh, as a Canadian, I would hope that other networks and other media outlets speak to you. Uh, even if, you know, we've spent an hour together, but even if it's a more brief interview, even just mentioning it, even just showing it, I would hope that other journalists get behind it too. Uh, you're a Canadian treasurer. You're uh, an important part of our political, legal, and constitutional past, but you're very, very relevant to the constitutional and legal present. And, and this lawsuit if successful, will bring more freedom to more people than anything else I can think of in the political legal world today. So I wish you so much luck, and thank you again for being with us. Thank you very much, Ezra, for having me, and thank you for going through it. I don't think I'll ever get an opportunity again in any media to be able to go through the lawsuit like you did. So thank you for giving me all this time and going through the actual words that are in the lawsuit. Have a wonderful day, and thanks again for taking the time to interview me in this manner. Well, it's my great pleasure. There you have it, a great Canadian, Premier Brian Peckford, who is fighting for freedom in the court with our friends at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Stay with us. My final thoughts are next. My head is spinning so much in there. Um, you know, I've read a lot of lawsuits in my day, and I've even written one or two. Uh, this is very well done, and I think it's got a chance. Um, of course, I keep thinking of that uh, remake of the movie True Grit uh, by the Coen brothers, and uh, my favorite line in it when one of the bad guys says, I don't need a good lawyer. I need a good judge. And um, I think having a good lawyer helps, but the federal court, and indeed, every other Canadian court has so far completely sided with the government. In fact, sometimes atrociously so. Maybe it's the fact that most judges are elderly, and so they're afraid of the virus more than other people. Maybe it's because judges at that level are in a very elite society where everyone's a rule maker, rule follower, and they're not out and about in gyms, in restaurants with young people who are working class. They're very stratified. They're in an elite society. Um, I say that because, of course, the Alberta judge that issued such an atrocious uh, sentence against Arthur Pavlovsky, Adam Germain is his name, he's in the Alberta uh, uh, courts, um, his ruling was full of factual misinformation. He said things like, every Albertan knows at least one person who died from COVID. No, no, that's, that's not true. In fact, uh, such a small number have actually died. But if you're saying that, you're probably a fear monger who's been surrounded by terrible news. And you're, so I'm worried that the, the nature of judges is to be old, so they're vulnerable, scared because they're not amongst happy people living their normal lives, and of course they defer to authority. So I'm worried that we will not have judges speaking out for freedom as there have been in other countries, including, of course, the United States. 
But if there is a lawsuit and a plaintiff that could actually possibly win, maybe it's this one. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom.